Ruben Jap, welcome to the Blockchain People podcast, powered by Decor, the decentralized objective research engine. At Decor, we are a distributed team of researchers creating institutional-grade research for capital institutions to understand and fund the true innovators and disruptors in decentralized ledger technologies. As you can see, we're doing this podcast to help educate the public and create an audience for the decision makers in the blockchain space. If you'd like to support this mission, all we will ever ask you to do is to hit the subscribe, follow, like, or whatever button you currently have in front of you. And of course, you can do this either on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Just search for either Decor or the Blockchain People podcast and you'll find us. Today, we have Ruben here. Ruben Jap is the co-founder of Firo, previously known as Seacoin, a project that started in 2016 to create the gold standard for privacy coins. I think I've said enough. I think I already talked a lot. Ruben, how are you? I'm, I'm great. Uh, you know, it's uh, 9 p.m. here, but... Uh... So it's good to to have an opportunity to educate, uh, especially you know when it relates to privacy coins. It's been a pretty misunderstood segment of of you know cryptocurrencies. Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited to 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 get into it. Yeah. And this is the year, this is where everyone has to, everyone suddenly realized that your privacy is more important than ever, even if you're Donald Trump. So Yes, definitely. So what can you, what, what can you say about like what you guys are expecting for 2020, 2021, sorry, in regards to adoption of, uh, of privacy coins? Hmm. I think that's a good one. I mean, of course, I'm I'm no like you know Nostradamus, and I wouldn't, you know, it's been supposed to be the year of privacy coins for maybe three years now. <laughs> we haven't uh, seen that yet, but I do think, uh, you know, definitely, I think I don't even need to say it, there is a really growing awareness of the need of privacy. Uh, you know, you used to be now uh, maybe a, I'll give a little bit of my background so. Maybe it's a makes more sense of where I'm coming from. Um, so, so I was a lawyer for about ten years, um, and also during this period, I ran. Um, I I actually started a, a VPN business, a virtual private networking business. Uh, it was quite successful. I think it was back in 2007. So this was quite a, a long time back. That means well, even before Bitcoin started. Uh, but I unfortunately only got into Bitcoin in around 2013 and so. And there was a very clear reason of why I got into Bitcoin was because VPNs then uh, were considered as something you use only if you're doing illegal activity. And, and that's you know totally ridiculous now. People think about, about it as like, it's just like antivirus for your internet connection, right? It's like <laughs> protection. <laughs> but then back then I had um had a lot of my payment channels cut off. Like all my credit card, I couldn't accept credit cards because they said we were a high-risk business. Uh and we were stigmatized and saying that, oh, you know, if you're using a VPN, you must be doing nefarious activities, right? And now that's not the case, but now, you know, we are starting to see people care about privacy in communications, right? I mean, like just recently with the WhatsApp, uh, you know, privacy policy change, everyone started installing Signal. I never thought there would be a day that, you know, suddenly everyone's signing up on Signal. It was just something that I used to talk with, you know, with my wife and, mm. and no one else because no one else uses Signal. Uh, but the thing is that what hasn't really taken hold is actually cryptocurrency privacy, financial privacy on the blockchain. And that really hasn't taken off, even though it is a really big problem today. I think especially if you are in the Ethereum ecosystem, you will actually be very aware of the privacy risk because you know most people only, only interact with one or two addresses on Ethereum because Ethereum uses an account-based model. You generally have one or two addresses that you do all your stuff on, right? right? You look up that address and you see everything that that person has done. 
you know, like, you know, which uh, DeFi food farm he's been in, you know, which exchange he's been, you know, where the money has gone, all the different tokens he's had, any ICOs he's participated. That's for everyone to see. And that tends to be tied to identity. Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, this, this address is tied to Alameda. That, that address is uh, tied to Three Arrows, right? And really, you know, do, do you think that these companies, if they had the choice, would they actually want that, you know, knowledge public, right? They right. probably wouldn't, but because of the nature of it and because this is kind of like a wild west right now, right? And it hasn't really matured, so people don't really care. But if we see a world where, you know, cryptocurrencies become mainstream, where, you know, everyone's using cryptocurrency for payments, then that's the case. Why would anyone want to use a cryptocurrency where, let's say, if I pay for a cup of coffee, I'm exposing potentially how much I have, how much I get paid, where my money comes from, who I spend to. I mean, I just paid for a cup of coffee. Why do I need to give you that information, right? And you can believe, like you can definitely be very confident that if cryptocurrencies payment pay off, every single company that's accepting cryptocurrencies will be performing some sort of analytics on you to get a customer profile of like this person paying, right? Obviously, you can't do that with cash, but you, and you know, credit cards, you know, it's kind of like siloed off from, from the, the merchant itself, but with, with like blockchain, public blockchain payments, is there for everyone to see. And people don't see the need for that. So I would say that, you know, privacy is going to be something that's really important in the next coming years. I wouldn't say like in one year or two years, but if we do believe that cryptocurrencies are going to be like very mainstream and stuff like that, beyond just a pure speculation, beyond the, the food farms, uh, then, you know, I, I do think that, that this thing really has to be solved right now. And there are very, very few good solutions out there. So, yeah. Very, very few good solutions out there. So apart from Firo, which ones would you say are good solutions out there? So I do think there are, I mean, like, I don't even need to. There are only maybe four or five blockchain privacy protocols out there. Um, okay, like the first one okay, is Monero, the number one, you know, right. I love what they do. Uh, they're using Ring CT. And then you have Zcash, which is using the zero cash protocol. Uh, then you have, um, you know, coin join variants, basically, which is what Dash uses, what Bitcoin uses, uh, pretty weak privacy there. And then you have member Wimble coins uh, like Grin and Bean, which also has been shown if you just use member Wimble alone, it doesn't really provide very good privacy as well. So these, and then you have, yeah, Firo with Lelantis. And that's basically almost the entire privacy landscape. Yes, maybe there's some small little ones out there, but these are the, the blockchain solutions out there and none of them are perfect. You know, we feel that, because uh, you know, I'm a bit biased. I do believe that our technology will be the most well-rounded one with the right amount of trade-offs. But the fact is maybe we can go more into detail later, but the fact is that all of these technologies come at some sort of cost, come at some sort of different trade-offs. Some are less, less scalable, some are more scalable, but less private, you know. Some are scalable and private, but take a lot of, like, use very experimental math. So it uh, gets really complicated. <laughs> yeah. And Firo, Firo is a rebranding of what was previously known as Seacoin, as we say in the, in the intro of this, of this podcast. And you Correct. guys are introducing a new way to do these privacy coins. You're actually like, <laughs> thematically, we, we can say like you're burning, you're introducing a protocol that's based on burning coins. So what can you say to the public about what the new protocol is, how it works in as basic terms as you can put it. And why did you feel necessary to do this rebranding from Seacoin to, oh, to Firo? Well, I guess that's that's two separate questions, right? Like why the rebranding and why are we approaching privacy uh, in that regard? Um, perhaps I'll talk about why we approach privacy uh, like this, right? right? Now, just on a very like rough overview, 
the main privacy protocols out there, uh, Mimblewimble, uh, the Ring CT, and Coin Joins, they are what we call decoy-based privacy solutions. So perhaps uh, you know it may be a bit um, better to kind of understand what does blockchain privacy mean, and they are basically three things that you want to hide on the blockchain. You want to hide the source of the funds, who sent the funds. You want to hide the amount of the funds. You know that's self-explanatory. And you want to make sure that you know when someone looks up a certain address, you know, they don't get details. Like, for example, if I put up a Bitcoin donation address, I can see how much is received, how many payments is received and stuff like that. I also want to have receiver privacy. So for, for these are the three things that I really want to protect on the blockchain. Perhaps the most important is the source of the funds because how you can do blockchain analysis. Blockchain analysis is about finding the connections between addresses and how they pay each other. And from there, you can kind of get a, a look at, you know, basically the financial history of, of this particular individual. So, right. So how do you hide this on the blockchain? Remember on the blockchain, you have to be transparent because everyone has to verify that the transaction is indeed valid and did happen. But yet, with privacy, you kind of have to hide certain things about it and yet be still verifiable. It's a tough solution. It's a tough challenge because you need to be both transparent and both private at the same time, right? Right. It's, a, and, it's like an oxymoron of sorts. Yes, correct. So you need to be verifiable and, uh, and private. So the way these decoy systems work is by introducing plausible deniability and how that works is like for example with coin join i don't know if anyone plays mahjong uh is like you know you take a like a like a row of like a mahjong tiles everyone throws their money in and then mixes it all together and then takes random random coins out of the of the of the mix and basically it becomes kind of obscures uh what who who's points you took it becomes very difficult to track that right Charles, are you still there all right yeah okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm just picturing the game because i never heard of it <laughs> so i was thinking right. of a, i was trying to think of an analogy but i got it in the end yeah so it's about hiding in a crowd and similarly with with like ring ct uh using monero it's about you know dragging 10 other different decoys and like saying, oh yeah, okay, so this transaction could have come from any of these 11 people. It could have, uh, you know, I know it's one of them, but I'm hiding in this crowd of 11 people or so, so that I'm introducing plausible deniability. Right. Similarly with Green, you know, I'm finding everyone who wants to make a transaction together and we all combine and make it. So one way that I always describe it, which is really crude, but really easy to explain is that I kind of imagine it like if I'm in a lift uh, and I want to let out a fart, right? <laughs> and, you know, so if, if I'm the only person in the lift and I'm the one farting, then obviously, you know, it's me. And that's kind of how Bitcoin works. Uh, the way like Ring CT works is like I drag 10 other people into the lift and then I let out my fart. So everyone's like, I know someone in this lift has fought it, but it could be any of this 11. Right, people, right, 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 right. That's a great um, way to put it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've and, had this type of analogies in the podcast before. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and for, for Mimba Wimba, like Grin and, and Beam, it's about dragging everyone who wants to fart at the same time. And everyone farts at the same time and the farts co-mingle and everyone's like, okay, I see all these farts, but I'm really not sure whose fart belongs to who. Right. That's kind of how, how this technology works, right? And while our technology is kind of like we go into the lift, we let out a fart, but we make it disappear. And at any time in the future, I can then choose to make this fart appear again. So it can be maybe 10 minutes from now or two years from now, or even five years from now, I can decide, all right, make this fart appear, right? And what that means is that my plausible deniability is not just with the people in the lift at the same time with me, right? That with all the other stuff you can see, I'm dragging 10 people in, I'm dragging how many people in. Here, 
the my plausible deniability is with everyone that has gone into the lift, right? Uh, right. So that's pretty powerful. And our version two of Lelantis actually allows you to even pass the right to redeem the thought to someone else. And that person may have never even entered the lift, but he can suddenly decide, I want that thought to appear. So that plausible deniability becomes so much greater than just being restricted to a handful of people. And that's kind of why we feel that you know, our privacy is a much more superior model uh, that is going to stand the test of time. Because remember, everything on the blockchain is permanent, right? You can't like erase it. And technology and machine learning and all this sort of stuff is just going to get better and better and better at, at you know, uh, processing and trying to weed out and, and reduce the decoys. With these type of systems, it becomes almost impossible to try and, and track, you know, unless you know, they use other methods to do so. And I guess that's in a nutshell uh, how our privacy protocol, this is why we approach it in that way. And the Now, I guess, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just curious because like I, I write, I'm, I'm a writer by trade. So I was just very curious <laughs> if this uh, farting analogy came before or after having created the, the actual product. Like, <laughs> did it actually help like conceive the idea of Hero? <laughs> uh well i i don't know i mean like you know there's this um you know people call coins shit coins and now maybe i'm like well maybe we're not so shit we were just farty but um no i mean this this analogy was actually i was the one who came out of it when i was trying to find a way to explain like all these different privacy features uh, but i don't think we design our <laughs> our privacy <laughs> protocol uh, around farting it was just like an, an easy way to try and, and explain it to people who may not be uh, you know so technically minded because the the literature before this was like, very technical <laughs> I, I think I think there's no way you can get less technical than this <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you, you were gonna go ahead about the rebranding yes right so I mean Zcoin was called Zcoin because we launched uh, with this protocol called the Zerocoin protocol. And uh, Zerocoin, the, the guys that wrote the Zerocoin paper uh, then wrote the Zero Cash paper, which was almost com a completely different protocol to Zerocoin. There were some like you know, shared teams, but the cryptography is different. The construction is different. It's almost like a completely different new system. But then it had the name called Zero Cash. So, you know, we were using Zero Coin, we called Z Coin, and then you have Zero, zero Cash, and then you have Z Cash, right? So, there's often still that confusion that, you know, because it didn't help there were many Z Cash forks, right? Like Z Classic and, and all this other uh, Bitcoin Private and all this sort of stuff. Uh, the, the Z was very, very. I kind of like branded towards the, 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 the Zcash thing. And even to today, people still think that we are fork of, of, uh, of Zcash. But now that we've changed to Firo, uh, no one says that anymore, right? But that's actually, I guess, more of like, it was one of the things that kind of pushed it over the line. But more importantly, we had to think about why, uh, what are we trying to build? And does our name suit our vision, right? right? And as, you know, lofty as it may seem, you know, we want to be an alternate form of money of a decentralized uh, financial system that, you know, exists above the, the existing, you know, fiat systems that we have. And if we want to be considered like real money, Uh, we have to sound like real money, right? I mean, like, honestly, if you say, oh, uh, yeah, doggy coin, you know, I love doggy coin, but like, Go it's on, coin. hard to imagine it as a serious currency, right? right? And something coin, this coin, A coin, Bitcoin, C coin, D coin, you know, um, even Bitcoin as itself isn't that great of a name, but it's just because it's grown so big. But even today, people still kind of think a bit like a, Like kind of like a funny, like a magic internet money, right? We right. want to if be you, treated. 
Yeah, yeah, if you talk about Bitcoin, you're right. The name doesn't help that much. Like the brand is too strong now and there's no way no one's going to change the name. But I remember reading about Bitcoin first about I remember first reading about Bitcoin in 2010 and thinking, wow, this right. is really dumb. <laughs> yes, I exactly. I mean, everyone was like, oh, what's this Bitcoin? You know, it sounds like some funny thing, right? And because it just, it sounds like toy money, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and so, well, you take a look at what are traditional currencies called. It's like, you know, the dollar, the euro, the pound, you know, the the bezel, right? They're all very easy to say. Uh, you know, they're very short, two, two syllables, one or two syllables or so. Uh, and we thought Firo really, you know, was easy to say. Everyone can say it. And <laughs> sounded like money. <laughs> and I guess the other idea was that Firo, you know, it's like, you know, we also chose the red color and stuff like that. It's like the burning, right? And right. We, it ties into our burning privacy mechanism. So I guess it's these three things, you know. It's like we want to sound like money. We want to 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 uh you know tie into our privacy mechanism, and at the same time, you know, we don't want to be confused anymore because first impressions really matter. So I guess these are the three things that we felt that uh, was the sort of impetus to rebrand. And given that Lantus is such a major leap in, in our, our privacy technology, it just felt like this was the right time to rebrand. Yeah. I, I'm going to go on and also this is a tangent here, but is there any chance that while looking at this, you learned why the dollar is called the dollar? I know why the peso is called oh, no. the peso. And I, I guess I know um, why the euro is called the euro, but I don't know about the dollar. That's, that's a good question. I haven't actually found that. I mean, I... Because I also worked with uh, with a designer called Diego. He probably knows the, the the reasoning behind it, but I didn't really like dig into the etymology of uh, the the origins of of, of the, the word dollar or, or pound. But I'll probably have to look it up after this. Yeah. Okay, because a, a quick uh, googling of this it reveals that it's an old word that used to be used to be used to describe coins so yeah i got nowhere with oh. this but, <laughs> but uh, i tried uh, I, know the, i know peso in spanish it means weight so mm -hmm. when they would trade a certain weight of a certain metal that's why it would eventually be called a peso it was just like here's one weight here's two weights right so okay so uh, out of this uh, little tangent uh, i have one question that you're probably already bored and sick of and this is <laughs> privacy coins how do we avoid them being used for evil purposes Ah, oh, okay, right. <laughs> you can hear the sigh. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we have to cover it. <laughs> no, no, obviously, I think it's, it's uh, definitely a valid question because, um, you know, privacy, I mean, on the very big scale of things, privacy always has been painted, especially by governments and people seeking to control you. Privacy has been painted as something bad because if you have, you know, nothing to hide you, uh, you, uh, you have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide right and therefore i should let everyone the government know everything that what i'm doing because if i'm a good outstanding citizen i don't have to worry about this type of things let's facebook into your whatsapp <laughs> right but actually the 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 person that said that this was uh gobbles he was the one of the Nazi propaganda chiefs. Ooh. And that really enforces as to who determines what is right or wrong, right? And, you know, like in Nazi Germany, you know, the concepts of right and wrong were very different, right? You could be just the wrong race. And you, know, you just could have a, a different ideology, right? And the fact that if you have no privacy is almost akin to, let's say that, Everything that I think in my mind is there for everyone else to see. So people say that they don't care about privacy, but can you imagine like every single thought of ours being open for everyone to see? Then people say, oh yeah, definitely I need some privacy there, right? And so that's on a very high level. But <clears throat> okay, sure. 
if you say you know usage of of privacy cryptocurrencies for for nefarious purposes, now if you take a look, actually the easiest way to do it is still with regular fiat dollars, right? I mean, there's no difference. The most of the crimes, like you know, if you say what's the use of privacy cryptocurrencies in global crime. I think it's not even a single one, not even one percent of of that. You know, most of the 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 crimes are being done on dollars, on you know the pounds or euros or whatever they on traditional uh, fiat currencies that pass through banks. Some of these are really big, like you know HSBC knew that Sinaloa drug cartel was using them for a very long time and did nothing. And all of these banks, you know, Citibank, all the big banks, if you just do a quick Google, you will find that trillions of dollars has been laundered through them. So I do think it's a bit uh, hypocritical to say that, oh yeah, privacy cryptocurrencies uh, are, the, are, uh, are going to be culprits here because fiat currency has served that amount. Banks have gotten away with barely a slap on their hand. So how can you say that, right? Now, but even let's say if you, you do believe that, yes, you know, we should try to stop illicit activity. And okay, that's fair enough. If you, there, there are two ways that you can look at it. First of all, I believe that money is more of a public infrastructure, right? That means it's like electricity. It's like a, this infrastructure is for paying people, for transfer of value, for making the economy work, right? Now, with an electricity, I can use it to cool down my room or I can use it to electrocute people. It's how you use it that, that really matters, right? It's not the money itself that's at fault. Similarly, cash, you know, is really useful. You don't have to open a bank account. You know, you, you, it, it can be stored alone. And in many countries, you know, for example, in especially like the less developed countries, it's the only way to actually, you know, keep your money. And no one talks about like, oh, yeah, you know, this, this, this is going to be useful for, for illicit activity or stuff like that. So I do think that privacy cryptocurrencies actually can be regulated. And if you take a look at this uh, opinion by Perkins Coyle LLP, which is a leading law firm in the US, uh, they actually say that, right, privacy cryptocurrencies can actually exist within the existing AML KYC framework. Because what we wanted to do as, let's say, as a regulator, I want to protect like the large flows, the large crimes, right? Maybe the small ones I may not be able to catch. But, you know, I want to make sure that the inflows and the outflows, especially when it's touching the fiat uh, side, you know, when I'm touching the dollars, the euro or whatnot, I want to make sure those flows are controlled. Now, let's say like, okay, I want to buy Firo and I go to a, a cryptocurrency exchange, Generally, if I want to buy large amounts, I need to do uh, email and KYC. I need to upload my bank documents, or, you know, my right. identity and stuff like that. And they know who I am, right? And if they say like, wow, you know, you just send me like $10 million uh, worth of Firo, the exchange can say, well, can you show me how you got this money? I mean, this is all standard practices, right? How this changes whether it's from Bitcoin or a privacy cryptocurrency, there's no difference because the exchange definitely knows how much you, you, you have, right? I mean, like they know who you are. And then you convert it, you convert it into uh, the fiat currencies. And so that's why if you allow private cri privacy cryptocurrencies to be traded on regulated exchanges, you will have oversight into the inflows and the outflows. And sure, you know, maybe you say like, okay, because we have a privacy cryptocurrency, I can't do effective blockchain analysis. I might ask uh, this customer more questions to show the source of their money. And that's fine. Privacy cryptocurrencies, it's not that I, I cannot show you. I can choose, show you. I can give viewing keys. I can give certain information to show, yeah, I got this from here, 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 and here. It's just that I'm not exposing it to the public by default, right? It's just like a bank account, right? I choose, like, I, I transfer money into a bank account. The bank is going to ask me, 
well, where you got this money, then only I show you. And similarly, it's the same thing with privacy cryptocurrencies. And even the often cited FATF travel rule uh, has nothing against privacy cryptocurrencies. It just says that when an exchange is transferring to another exchange or a custodial wallet, they have to attach information that where this money, who this money was sent on behalf of. And you can do that with cash. You can do that with privacy cryptocurrencies. There's no difference per se. So I would say that, you know, first of all, we have to stop thinking as privacy is for negative uh, stuff. And even if we say that, all right, you know, yes, there's obviously the risk of, of bad stuff happening in privacy cryptocurrencies, but the existing frameworks already catch it. There's not much actual difference in the way that you do it. And if you think about it, the worst way to deal with it is to ban privacy cryptocurrencies. Right. Now, if you start banning the privacy cryptocurrencies, what happens then? Do they stop existing? They don't. They start moving to DAXs. They start moving to P2P exchanges where regulation is very, very challenging because it's at the P2P level, right? I mean, we've seen it with P2P technologies like torrents and all this sort of stuff. I mean, like today, Pirate Bay still exists, right? Like, um, it's... Does it? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised, but uh, these sort of... The, the, the thing that killed piracy was not the shutdown of Pirate Bay was because the rise of Netflix and, and, and Spotify and all this very easy to use stuff, right? So I would really argue that if you're going to ban privacy cryptocurrencies, you will actually lose more control because you wouldn't have no idea as to the flows of this money here and there. And yeah. It, so it's sort of that. like it's sort of like with the Napster case back in the day with the music downloads. Like they banned Napster just so people wouldn't be down illegally downloading music or wouldn't be downloading digital copies of music rather. And as soon as they banned it, everyone just created a friendly P2P interface, such as like RS or LimeWire or whatever people used in in where right. we are from. And Yeah, just as, as you say, you create a need when you ban things because all of a sudden you direct all the attention towards what you're trying to ban. So what are you... Well, uh -huh. well, well, very quickly, I would say there's a difference between stuff like Napster and Pirate Bay and stuff like that. I mean, we all know that the vast majority of content, like maybe 99% of the content there is basically pirated material, right? But if you take a look at actual studies that look at, as to the actual use of privacy cryptocurrencies or why people use CoinJoin on Bitcoin, very, very few of them are actually connected to illicit and activities. They are just people who may not want their information for everyone to see. And I think that's a legitimate um, expectation if, if I want to hold money on cryptocurrency. So it's quite different. I mean, like, even if you agree with the Napster and stuff like that, it's even, it's, there's, it's like, I wouldn't say it's like, it's not in like 90%, you know, it's maybe like less than 10% or even 5% or so. I forget the exact numbers, but there has been many reports. I believe the RAND report, R-A-N-D actually went into the deep dive into, well, okay, how much are privacy cryptocurrencies are using illicit activity? And, and that amounts are very, very small. And for example, would you say that most people that are using privacy coins then are just trying to sort of like, are just sort of doing it to stick with an particular ideology? Sort of like, let's say when, and this is a very rough example, of course, don't take it too literally, but sort of like when people decide to buy, I don't know, locally produced food rather than industrial <clears throat> products. So they are, they're just doing it for an ideological case. No, I think that's a real use case because, all right, like, do I want everyone, I mean, okay, this is just a hypothetical. Let's say I have 2,000 Bitcoins. Yeah. Do I really want the world to know that? You know, do I want the world to know when I spend from this Uh, money, you know, like, like if Satoshi was alive now, you know, how is he going to move his coins without 
people knowing? Is that a good thing? Is that actually like the creator of Satoshi would be placed at risk if he tried to move his coins right, right now, right? And I, you know, I don't want to let people know how much they have, you know, or, or even tell people like, oh, okay, am I buying Bitcoin now? Or am I selling Bitcoin now, you know? Uh, people can see all of this on, on exchanges. And I mean, there's a whole sign surrounding of like uh, blockchain analysis and on-chain uh, analysis to look at, you know, predict price uh, movements. I think like Whitley Wu and all these people are like really leaders in that. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, okay, it's all fun and games, but is that really how real businesses work? Do I really want all this information online? Do I? This is a real problem for me. As a as the project that that has a development fund, do I want my competitors to know how much I'm paying my programmers? Right, <laughs> right, yeah. How much I'm paying this and that and whatnot. Yes, we can give aggregate figures, but you know, I'm really opening myself to to you know outside outside information being leaked out. So I think that's really undesirable if we do want to use cryptocurrencies for real purposes yeah particularly in a business such as cryptocurrency where a lot of programmers and a lot of developers choose to stay anonymous i know you have a couple of anonymous developers on your on your team and yes well, and then there are like white hat hackers and hackers and etc and people that actually benefit um, in their in their professional activities from being anonymous. So th that's a great use case, just that I'm curious if you were Satoshi, I'm not saying that you are, I'm not <laughs> implying that you are right now, but if yeah, you were Satoshi, not. would you, what route would you take if you wanted to cash out some, some of your Bitcoin? Yeah, exactly. I have no idea how you would do that. You know what? Use maybe BISC, B-I-S-Q, and even then, it's just going to attract so much attention, right? Like, how are you going to say, okay, how are you going to pay me? What are you going to meet me? <laughs> That's also a risk. You're going to transfer to a bank account. That's also a risk, right? Like, more likely, I will say, okay, transfer it to me in a privacy cryptocurrency, mm. and then I can go and cash it out. That actually makes the most sense, right? Um, but yeah, I think. It, it, I think that problem, you know, if Satoshi wanted to cash his coin, is, is a very good question if people are actually asking, but, well, why should I have uh, privacy on cryptocurrencies? Yeah. And then, I, moving further from the topic of like, are privacy coins evil or good? <laughs> Because as I said, I, I know that you must be tired of this one. Here's a fun one. I noticed when I was doing some research for this podcast episode that you guys run one of the first or maybe the very first experiment with elections on the blockchain in Thailand back in right. the day. So what can you tell us about this and how do you see blockchain being implemented for democratic elections now that we have a little uh, back and forth about <laughs> democratic elections going on in the world right uh, uh, well i mean like i would i would really caution to say that you know i mean like i know even andrew yang was yang was talking about you know using blockchain for elections but uh e-voting is a very partic uh complex topic and the most difficult problems You know, especially when it's relating to identity, you know, preventing vote buying and all this other stuff. Blockchains don't really solve that. Um, blockchains, all they can do is that it's publicly verifiable. And especially if it's a public blockchain, uh, there's some, uh, you know, immutability of, of those things. But for many cases, you know, that aren't really the, the most important things. But In the Thailand scenario, it was quite a unique scenario because what happened there was uh, the Thai Democrat Party, which was um, a, a major opposition party. It, it did used to be the ruling party in the past. <laughs> the, previously, the way they selected their leader was that it was basically just a bunch of the big wigs at the top saying, okay, you know, I think you should be the next, uh, you know, president of the party. And what happened there was this particular president 
he had been the leader of the party for quite a long time, and he was actually a former prime minister of Thailand. So it's not as if he, you know, ha- hasn't been in power before. And what happened was there was a lot of sort of drama because they were saying like, "I'm sorry, oh, what is the name? You know, what is the name of this man?" Uh, Abhisit. 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 Thank you. And Abhisit. Yeah, sorry. And people saw him as. Uh, like a, a Western educated uh, upper class type of person that cannot connect with the people, right? Right, and people are saying, well, you know, does he actually have the chops to lead the Democrat Party again? And uh, so he wanted to kind of renew his mandate and say that, look, I want instead of just a bunch of big wigs voting me, I want to make sure that at the grassroots level. I'm going to get like the support from the Democrat Party members, and he said that well, why don't we give it a shot that instead of just the big wigs electing me, we actually you know open the vote to every single Democrat Party member, which which number in the millions, well at least on paper, right? Maybe many of them may not be active. So what happened then was they decided to go through e-voting because you know just the sheer number and you know the cost involved. In holding like a, just a uh, like an internal political party election, but halfway through, uh, some of the other candidates actually expressed their concern to say that, how am I going to know that this e-voting results aren't going to be tampered with because you know that the 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 votes are stored on the server, you can modify, you can take away votes. How can I be sure that you know you are not tampering with the votes, right? And sure, there was a the Democrat Party had its own you know election commission, but the candidates were saying, well, you know, you could influence them as well. We don't trust them as well. So someone, well, rather like you know, um, Paramin, who was our founder, uh, actually said that, well, why don't you consider using a public blockchain like like Zcoin as it was as it then was. Um, and they were like, oh yeah, you know, we 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 understand uh, roughly what blockchain is. You know, with a public blockchain, no one can, uh, no one, no one person can control it, and therefore um, we're okay to to do this on 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 the on Zcoin. So basically, what happened was 127,000 votes were cast on our blockchain. And you know the the election, there was no it went smoothly. There was no uh, contest of the results um, because there were some small little hiccups here and there, not from our end, more on on some uh, other errors here and there. But by and large, the the results were not contested. So I do think it, it in this particular sense, in this particular case, the the use of the blockchain really helped improve the trust with the stakeholders mm-hmm. but i don't know if it would be like you know would it should it be used in all elections i think each election has to be looked at uh, as to its needs uh, you know the people at the security level and stuff like that whether whether in, in deciding whether i should put it on a public blockchain or not but yeah i, I thought it was a very interesting use case I'm curious here because we all here, especially in the blockchain eco chamber, where we all hear the same arguments repeated again and again, uh, we all know what the positive case for the use of blockchain in in elections would be. But right. w- what do you see the the downsides being here, especially in like so big, blockchains uh, only yeah, especially in big scale elections. The 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 problem is that blockchains only store right so but then it, it comes down to the software and the hardware itself right like when i press when i vote for for candidate a you know uh how do i know that this this candidate a is being actually posted on the blockchain do you expect the 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 voter to be educated to look up look it up on the blockchain you know right uh, and there are so many risks when it relates to the software and the hardware implementations because you can say, oh yeah, I store it on the blockchain, but I can still say, okay, maybe certain votes, I don't post it on the blockchain. How can you tell? It doesn't really solve the issue there, right? Or 
if uh, identity fraud, you know, someone's you know pretending to be someone else. Blockchains don't solve that, right? So blockchains are only one part of the solution, and it only solves the storage of the votes. But the really difficult stuff, like you know, voter fraud or like you know, uh, voter coercion or making sure that the 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 machines themselves are not compromised. That's really really hard. I mean, like in the US, you know, some of the machines uh, had many uh, vulnerabilities within them. So I do think that in those situations, you know, blockchains don't help because you still need some sort of interface to <clears throat> interact with the blockchain. <laughs> of course, in the ideal scenario, what would happen is that you have this, uh, you know. Um, piece of, 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 of software that when you press it, you can then publicly verify on the blockchain and you can, but you cannot, but it will not reveal like, you know, which way you voted and stuff like that. So, I mean, that is possible, but, you know, I think probably beyond the scope of this uh, 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 talk and I'm not an election expert, though my cryptographer is, but I do think that, you know, most experts agree that blockchains only solves one part of the issue of e-voting and, you know, it's not like a panacea to all the solutions of e-voting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here, I wanted to ask you because you touched briefly on the topic of identity on the blockchain, knowing who is who and yeah. And we have one of our previous guests, Monica Singer from Consensus talk about how they're trying to develop sovereign identities on the blockchain. So, Would do, how do you see that from a privacy perspective? Would you say it's a positive or a negative thing that to be putting identities publicly on the blockchain? Um, I mean, like if it's tied to a real life identity, then yes, that is a problem. But obviously, there are use cases where you know I want to reveal that that I am an entity that's holding this, this, and this, but not necessarily who I am. I think there's nothing wrong with that, and I don't think. You know, it's although you say that I'm a privacy person, I'm not against like identity or like you know giving out certain information. Uh, the fact is that we have to be able to have that choice. If we don't have that choice, then that's a problem. But if we have a choice, then yeah, that 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 is a, an issue. So I don't ever actually, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on digital sovereign identity. But I don't think it's at odds with, with privacy and or also things like that. Yeah. Okay, good. So we're just um, arriving at the time mark of one hour. So let's uh, start wrapping up. Uh, before we finish this podcast, I would like to talk about two more things. And one of them is the launch of your mainnet, which you just very recently announced. And well, congrats on that. So what's... Yes, uh, yeah. What's so exciting and what should people look forward to when it comes to Lelantus? Right. Uh, well, I mean, like, when you say launch of mainnet, I mean, Zcoin or Firo, you know, has been on mainnet since 2016. So this is more of like a protocol upgrade on that, that comes live on our mainnet. And Lelantus is actually pretty significant because... <clears throat> it actually opened a whole class of new types of privacy protocols. Because, you know, as I mentioned previously, there were only a few privacy protocols out there on the blockchain, and none of them were perfect. And what Lelantis actually achieves is very, very high anonymity sets. So you're talking about, you know, anonymity sets, that means like the plausible deniability instead of like in Monero, which is like 10 or 11 or something like that. You're talking about anonymity sets of like 65,000 or so. And we achieve these um, high anonymity guarantees without relying on very fancy experimental cryptography. We use cryptographic assumptions that have been used you know, for more than a decade or so and then are very, very well understood so that if those cryptographic assumptions break, you know, the least of your problems is a cryptocurrency. You know, I think the whole world will be on fire or stuff like that. Um, And I guess the idea is that we also don't have something what we call a trusted setup, which uh, we don't need people to like create certain initial parameters and have some elaborate ceremony to destroy it, uh, which is also important because in that 
there are no backdoors inside that people can verify and trust this uh, protocol, right? And I do think Lelantis, although with such high anonymity that it provides, it still remains relatively simple and accessible for people to, to understand its inner workings. When you compare it to, let's say, you know, like Zcash, which, which uses ZK Snarks, even cryptographers uh, can have actually a very hard time in understanding this. And, you know, probably there'll be only like a handful of people in this world that they really understand ZK Snarks in, in and out. So I do feel that there's nothing wrong with ZK Snarks. It's just like a different set of uh, priorities there. You know, we are here to provide the highest levels of practical privacy while relying on very, uh, you know, strong crypt uh, cryptographic assumptions that have really stood the test of time. And our work is not just on its own, it's actually spawned uh, innovation in even Monero. So for example, Monero has been looking at ways to increase its ring sizes because they're seeing like 11 is not good enough. Maybe 100 would be better. Uh, they took our ideas from Lelantis and to develop this uh, new protocol called Triptych. Uh, so of course we feel that, uh, you know, still like one in a hundred or so obviously is still not as good as one in 65,000. Uh, but it means that because of our innovation, there's this whole new family of privacy protocols being born and Beam has also uh, modified Lelantis to work with Mimblewimber and launch something called Lelantis Mimblewimber. So I do think it's really exciting in the sense that this is real practical privacy that works today and still gets pretty good performance numbers for even like say like you you get uh transaction numbers as the same like bitcoin so i'm really excited that you know we are presenting a very compelling competitor to the privacy protocol space and we are seeing you know interest not just within our community but also outside it so i think it's a it's a, a huge step in, in in the right direction in blockchain privacy what you're saying about like basic cryptography and about you know solving problems in a sort of an old-fashioned way or in a very logical way in the shortest amount of steps possible i it sort of reminds me of bitcoin and the famous byzantine general problem um when right. i was reading about uh, the new solutions that you're proposing. And one concept that really attracted me, it's the zero knowledge cryptographic proof yes. explanation. Uh, can you can you touch briefly on it for the for the audience that may not know what it is? Yeah, but I mean a zero knowledge proof is basically the proof that you did something, only proving that you did it without giving any other information about it. So for example, there are many types of things that you can prove. But the, the type of proof that we use in the Lantus is to prove that you're one of the people that entered the lift without actually showing which person I am. I can prove that I'm one of the people that entered the lift without showing you, okay, this is the guy, I'm, I'm this person that went into the lift. So that's why this particular zero-knowledge proof is called one out of many. I'm proving that I'm one out of this many people that entered the lift without giving you any other information about who am I or stuff like that. Uh, I think that's a, an easy way to, 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 to describe it. But basically, a zero-knowledge proof is only proving, proving a certain statement without having to reveal any other details about it. Uh, so I can prove like I can prove that I have uh, a value between zero to hundred without actually showing you the value. Like I can say my bank account balance has maybe three hundred thousand uh, dollars in it without actually showing you the individual transactions they make it up. But you know that I could not cheat and that that I really do have three hundred thousand dollars in my bank account. So I think those are some real-world examples of how zero-knowledge proofs work. Yeah. Okay, that's a great that, that's a great answer. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> this lift example it allows us for a lot of uh, for, for a lot of digging into this topic, and it it's a rough one. It's a, but it, at the same time, it's easy for everyone to understand. So, what other advantages and 
I'll let you go after this one. What other advantages do you see of using this kind of cryptography that allows someone to go into the lift, do whatever they want to do in there, and be able to then show that they did or what they didn't do in case they needed it? And how does it relate to the actual burning? Uh, how, how does this relate to the actual one? Sorry. A, a burning of the tokens. Um, well, I mean, as I mentioned, like, you know, obviously when you are doing this sort of um, zero knowledge proof, like I'm not just proving that I'm in a group of, you know, 10 or 11 people. I don't even have to be there, right? Right. It's just allowing much larger anonymity sets. And zero knowledge proofs not only hide the hide who entered the lift, Uh, but in the transaction, they can hide the amount. So I can prove that I transacted like a certain amount. I'm not creating coins out of thin air, but I hide the amount. And that's also achieved using certain specific type of zero knowledge proofs. So I do think that, I mean, like zero knowledge proofs in privacy is only one small aspect. You can use zero knowledge proofs in many other ways. Like, for example, I can prove uh, that the entire blockchain is... You know, I, I, I can validate entire transactions on the blockchain. Instead of having an entire blockchain, I only have maybe a 25 kilobyte file on my computer that I can prove that this transaction was within the blockchain or something like that. So um, I think it's pretty hard to explain in a very simple manner, but it's all about proving things without having to show everything. I guess that's uh, it in a nutshell. But... I would say that the decoy systems are okay for today, like the decoy privacy systems. But for example, when you start making repeated transactions to the same person, uh, these decoy uh, models can fall apart quite quickly. Because like, let's say if I'm only hiding in a group of 10, and like, again, like for example, in Monero, like I send one, I, uh, I send... Like I can see the, the movement of the coins and I spread to like 10 other people, 10 other people, 10 other people. So there's this flow that I can kind of see. It's just that there are many different branches that it could have taken. Now, for example, if I'm an exchange or let's say I'm a merchant and I see, and I know who you are, you make this payment to me, let's say once, twice. Oh, when, you, when, when I get it once, I may not get much information. I just know, okay, yeah, there's this like, like millions of possible sources that, that could have actually um, come from this money from. So yeah, okay, your privacy is preserved there. But once I start making repeated payments, the chances of all of this coming from the same source are very, very low. So let's say like if I had like, you know, I, I got it from Binance or some, some other exchange and then I paid to this merchant and he notices that from this five payments that you made, you know, uh, there is a common source. So he, you just basically just stripped away all the decoys because now I can say that what are the chances of five of these payments coming from a different person given they all have a common source? And I feel that in that case, decoy kind of models really, really breaks down. And that's why it's better to use, um, you know, this entering the lift and like disappearing. So that means your plausible deniability is much higher and is not even restricted to the people in the lift with you. So yeah, I can, that's the best way I can explain it. So tying back to the lift example, decoy would be? Decoy would be dragging other people into the lift with you, right? Like, okay, right. a very easy example. If I keep on dragging people into the lift over and over, right? I'm still the one staying there, or <laughs> maybe my fart has a particular, uh, you know, particular stench. <laughs> uh, you know, I will get found out. Like, if I'm in the lift and I keep on bringing 10 people, new people in, 10 people, new people in, People, after a certain amount of time, they're like, hang on, this guy is always in the lift, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of how that privacy breaks down, right? So 
Um, I think that's an easy way to not exactly 100% accurate to describe it, but it, it kind of illustrates the problems there. Right. Or then the lift uh, continues having a particular Mexican smell and then <laughs> it's very clear that, that that's me. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, right. so Ruben, that's, it's been great to have you here. Uh, for those of you that are listening on the audio platforms, you might have not noticed, but Ruben has a pretty <laughs> tough cough right <laughs> going on right now. So thank you twice as much for doing this even though you have this problem and you've been really skillful muting and unmuting yourself between pauses. I'm really <laughs> impressed with those skills as well. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to leave our audience with anything you'd like them to do or to start looking into if they have the chance? Uh, well, I mean like, you know, drop by our website at firo.org, F-I-R-O.org, you know, follow our Twitter and, you know, we're really active on Telegram. We have a uh, news Um, you know, because with the, um, like, uh, Binance is uh, rebranding from our old ticker, which was XZC to Firo, uh, there will be some events surrounding that. Just uh, make sure that, you know, um, you stay tuned on that. But, uh, you know, on a technical standpoint, we, we do have really exciting developments, not just on privacy, but on usability and, and uh, you know, all this uh, usability sort of stuff. And we're really excited to roll this all out in 2021. And uh, I really hope that people see what we're building and see the value in what we're building because, you know, there is a need, especially with the rise of CBDCs, right? Which are central bank digital currencies where many of these uh, CBDCs do not have privacy design in mind. Uh, you know, some of them talk about it, but they're like, It's okay as long as it's only the government that knows. <laughs> I, I personally, I think that's a problem because it means that you know you can be cut off from the financial system at the press of a button if you say the wrong thing. And I think it's a serious, uh, it's a serious problem where you can basically control. It's a, a system of control because if you don't do what I say. I can cut you off from the financial system. Oh, you know, if I, your opposition, I can cut you off. I think people tend to uh, underestimate the, the, the problems that this face. And I believe that, you know, if you take a look at Germany, Germany, despite being such an advanced country, really, really defends its right to cash. And, and this is one of the reasons, right? Because they believe it's an important check and balance between the power of the state and, and the individual. And, you know, I do hope that people realize that going cashless is really, can be quite dangerous. Uh, it, it descends into almost like a, a big brother type of dystopia. And, you know, CBDCs are one thing, and then they have their data, they know who we are, you know, they track our data on our phones. It just really completes the whole picture. And I hope people are aware how important it is for independent private cryptocurrencies to exist. Yeah. There is that, there's always that thing, right? Because with privacy projects, you always fear or there is always the possibility of negative regulation hitting you hard, right? So how, how do you prepare for that? I mean, the first thing is that, um, first of all, the way that we're approaching it is that in two ways, right? One which is to show that how privacy cryptocurrencies can comply with existing regulations. So there's this movement called Comply First, Uh, it's run by this guy called Justin Ehrenhofer, who also works with Monero. He's helping to, you know, um, come up with several compliance briefs so the exchanges can take a look at it and like, okay, look, these are the ways I can implement uh, email KYC uh, policy that makes sense and, and still be, uh, you know, in the realms of law. And I mean, you know, all this like talks of delistings, I mean, Kraken still lists Monero And Kraken has a banking license. I, I think that shows how that you can definitely comply. It may be a little bit more work, but you know, exchanges shouldn't take the short way out and just delist. Uh, so we are definitely trying to educate and make sure that the resources are available and make it easy for uh, institutions or, or stuff to comply. Uh, 
The second way is to make sure that you know we have decentralized options. You know we're listed on debtors, we're building liquidity elsewhere, so that uh, you know like even as you know certain exchanges delisters, we have alternate forms of liquidity. So we're building ways to bridge into other cryptocurrencies or other cryptocurrencies to bridge into us because ultimately the biggest protection against regulation is adoption. Right. And I think Bitcoin has, has has shown that. I mean, like, can you imagine Satoshi going to a regulator and saying, "Oh, uh, can I create Bitcoin?" <clears throat> Obviously not. You know, uh, they would <laughs> have allowed it, but because it 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 blew out so much that regulation had to regulate around it. And it's not that Bitcoin is a bad thing. It's just that regulators are by default don't want to create trouble for themselves. They rather not deal with with new stuff. And I mean, take a look at Airbnb. Take a look at Uber. Right? They grew faster than regulation could. Could catch up with them, or even the internet and porn and drones. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. But you know what I'm trying to say is that yeah. you know adoption is the number one protection. But obviously, we're trying to make sure that there are resources for exchanges that that do want to comply and to sort of dispel the the myth that you do need blockchain analysis to comply. I mean that has been a a, a growing myth that's been. Perpetrated by these blockchain analysis companies who just want to be dominating everything, right? Oh, we can't analyze you. We have to delist you, so therefore everyone has to use our services. I mean, that's kind of what they want, right? Uh, and at the same time, making sure that we are hard to stop. So yeah, right. And that is a great place to finish this. Um, yeah. If you're a user of cryptocurrency, if you're in the cryptocurrency world you're already helping make these things possible and you're already helping create positive regulations for us because right. the fact that we're using these things and the fact that we are creating decentralized alternatives to use to continue to use these things means that eventually governments and eventually regulators are going to have to accept that, the, that this is here to stay and that it is better to create safe ways and ways that protect everyone to use them. And of course, I want to thank you for being here, Ruben, and thank you for providing such easy, such easy to grasp explanations, because just as there's a need for people to understand these things, there's a need for people to put them in simple terms that we can all understand. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Carlos, for really uh, having this opportunity. And well, if anyone that listening here would like to join the Decor team as a crypto researcher, I'd just like to advertise quickly that you can do so by following the links here in the description box. You can start creating a flow of cash into decentralized alternatives into crypto projects into blockchain projects by being a Decor researcher. So just follow up and thank you very much again, Ruben. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye, everyone.